it was hot. The sun was relentless. It was beating down. We were tired. We were sunburned. But we were having the time of our lives. Jack was about, my son Jack was about 10. Gabe was about 8. They were campers. I was a volunteer leader at our summer soccer camp. Our community had invited a, this amazing soccer player who had played professional soccer for uh, a number of years to come up and run this camp that he, that he ran in different places called FLOW. And it's an acronym standing for Forever Loving Others. This guy, he was a passionate follower of Jesus <clears throat> whose mission was to share the love of Jesus through what he knew best, and that was soccer. Well, over the course of the week, we played soccer. We learned all kinds of soccer skills. I said I was a volunteer leader, but that doesn't mean I was awesome at soccer. I, I was learning along with the kids. I was just there to help share Bible stories and help share stories and, and celebrate kids and uh, all that through soccer. Well, uh, it was at this camp that I first learned of an acronym called GOAT, G-O-A-T, which stands for something. Each letter stands for something, and if you don't know that acronym, you're just like I was at this camp uh, when, I, when I first heard it. It was really funny because the guy who ran the camp, his name was Dana, or his camp name was Sonny D, he, uh, he loved goats. He talked about goats, uh, his goats that he had like they were his pets, like we have a cat and a dog. They, he treated his goats, he had three goats that he treated like his like his pets. And he came from California, and we all know that everybody in California surfs, right? So he surfed, which was not surprising, but what was surprising was that he surfed with his goats. Like he, and it's not that they were on the beach with him, they actually went out on the surfboard in the water, in the waves with him. You can look up surfing goats and you'll find a picture and videos of Sonny D or Dana with his goats uh, surfing. So you can actually check it out. Well, when he brought out the goat award after the first day, I thought it had something to do with his goats because he loved goats so much. And uh, it wasn't the third, second or third day when I finally realized, oh, this isn't about his goats. This is a this is goat that means something. And it means greatest of all time. So we would pick a kid and we'd celebrate that kid with the greatest of all time. You know, each day we'd have a different kid that was the greatest of all time. And, and uh, every day, you know, the leaders and volunteers would try to pick a kid that would, would enjoy being celebrated that way. Well, ever since that, that time, I've heard this term a lot. Goat. Who's the goat? Uh, I've witnessed this raging debate about who's the goat in whatever sport you're talking about. I, I think it started with Muhammad Ali in the 1960s, the boxer, you know, I'm the greatest. Well, recently it was Tom Brady, the quarterback of the, uh, of the Super Bowl, who won his seventh Super Bowl in 2021. And in every sport, they, they, they present who they think the goat is, and there's these debates about who's the goat. And it's not only in sports, but it's also in, in singing and in acting and in, and in uh, comics, nearly all fields. What I haven't seen on social media is a claim on the greatest of all time commandment. But, as always, the Bible is beyond its time because over 2,000 years ago, 
Jesus was asked what he thought the greatest commandment was. Last week, we saw how a religious group of leaders called the Sadducees brought a question, a well-crafted question to Jesus to try to force him to agree with them that, you know, this, this uh, uh, resurrection thing, it just is absurd. It doesn't make sense. And the week before that, we looked at the Pharisees about how they brought up question of paying taxes to Jesus to try to trap him into, into saying something dumb that would, that would discredit him. And in both cases, Jesus was not fooled. He saw their ploy, and he turned it around and used it as an opportunity to teach about a, a, a kingdom view of politics and a resurrection and the power of God to anyone who would be willing to listen. Well, today it's not a group of people who come to Jesus, but it's an individual. And uh, he doesn't seem to be trying to set a trap. He seems to be genuinely interested in what Jesus would say. So I'd like to read Mark 12, verses 28 through 34. If you could open it up and have it in your Bible in front of you or on your app or whatever, that'd be great, but it will be up on the screen as well. Mark 12, 28 through 34. It says, one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, Jesus answered, is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. The question that this teacher of the law or this scribe brings to Jesus, it's actually not a unique question just for Jesus. It's, it's a kind of question that the teachers of the law would contemplate. Rabbis counted 613 commandments in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament law, and that's a lot of commandments. And so they would try to they would try to put them in some sort of order, try to, try to summarize them to help people uh, differentiate and, and be able to keep them. And so they would dif differentiate heavier laws that, that, that take more of, of your life or, or take more effort. And then the lighter ones and the heavier ones would, would have deeper consequences. And, uh, and the, the hope is that when you, when you focus on the heavier ones, you'll, you'll automatically keep the lighter ones. You, you, they were trying to put some sort of order so that they could keep them better. And so rabbis, they'd think about these things and then they'd summarize, try to get an overarching principle that, that would help you keep the laws. And so the question about which commandment was the greatest wasn't about these are the ones you keep and these are the ones you don't. It was more of the what's the underlying principle that will help us keep this. And then Jesus gives his amazing answer in verses 29 through 31. And I want to invite Chris Height up this morning. Chris Height, one of our family here, who, who has put a lot of thought into these verses. He actually came and, and shared with 
Pastor Chris and Pastor Kevin and I, uh, what, what he thought of these verses. Um, and, uh, and so I wanted him to share that with you. I, I think that uh, you will benefit from what he has to say. So, so Chris, if you could come up and, and, and share your thoughts on these verses about the greatest commandments. Good morning. Um, yeah, so my favorite Bible verse is the parallel verse in Matthew. It basically says the same thing as um, in Mark chapter 12. So in Matthew, again, Jesus was asked, what's the most important commandment? And Matthew 22, verse 37, Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your soul. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. All the laws and prophets hang on these two commandments. So what jumped out at me with this, and the reason this is my favorite verse, is because of that last sentence there, where it says, all the laws and all the prophets hang on these two things. That puts a lot of weight on these two things. Like basically the whole Bible, the way I see it, all of Christianity is summed up in these two simple things, love God, love one another. And out of these two things, the more important one is to love God. A lot of us are familiar with the verse John 3:16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him will have everlasting life. Whoever believes in him will never perish but have everlasting life. Now, it took me a long time to realize what, what it meant to believe in God. See, I thought it meant believing in God. I thought it meant to believe in the existence of God. But that's not what this verse is talking about. Um, because even Satan and Satan's followers, they believe in the existence of God. This verse talks about believing in God like trusting in God. Trusting in God with your life. I can give an example. For instance, um, like when you were a child, maybe your parents told you you have to go to school. Did you believe in your parents? They said you have to learn to read and write because you need to know these things when you grow up. Did you believe in your parents and trust them with your life? Maybe some of you have ever flown on an airplane. When you stepped foot on that airplane, did you trust in that airplane? Did you trust in that airplane with your life? You know where it's going. So did you believe in that airplane? I'm obviously not talking about did you believe in the existence of that airplane? So, I think the verse in John 3.16, for whoever believes in him shall have everlasting life, it's not talking about believing in God's existence. It's talking about believing in God to trust God with your life. Because when you trust God with your life, it's a sign of loving God, right? And when you love God, it'll change who you are. Some of you might have become a Christian later on in your life at a time that you can actually remember. And if you experienced this, you might know that, like, you went through a transformation. Because um, I went through something like this in my early 20s, where I transformed. I no longer enjoyed the sinful things that I used to enjoy. And then suddenly I started to enjoy the things that are more godly and that make God happy. Becoming a Christian will change you to your core when you really love God. You're no longer going to want, it's just, it's something natural that'll happen. You're not going to want to do sinful things. It's, it's, it's out of love. You're going to become 
the type of person who loves the things that God loves and hates the things that God hates. And that's what it is to love God. So I'm going to propose a question for you guys this morning. And I think this is an important question. I think this is literally the most important question in the world and in our lives. You don't have to answer it, but maybe think about it. Do you love God? Do you love God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind? The way I see it, there's three possible answers to this question. You might answer, yes. Yes, I love God. And I hope all of you do answer yes. I hope that someday everybody in the world could answer yes to this question. Wouldn't that be amazing? You might answer no to this question. No, I don't. And at least you're being honest with yourself. But I think a lot of us are going to fall into the third category, the third possible answer, and that's somewhere in the middle. You know, maybe it's like, well, I want to love God. Or maybe it's like, well, I don't know if I love God. How do I know? Well, I can propose a couple of tests that you can take for yourself, and they'll, they'll give you an indication of if you really do love God. The first test, it's, uh, it's what I already talked about. Have you transformed as a person? Do you love the things that God loves and hate the things that God hates? We're all sinners. Everybody, nobody's perfect, right? Um, but when you do something sinful, is it something that you're a little bit proud of and you look forward to the opportunity to do it again? Or is it something that you feel a little bit ashamed of and you hope that if, if that happens again in the future, you hope you could have the strength to overcome it and not do it again? So that's the first test. Do you love the things that God loves and hate the things that God hates? The second test, do you love God, is, is an emotional reaction. If you think about somebody in your life, somebody who you love, somebody who you really love, and somebody else says bad things about that person, they slander them, how does it make you feel? I think it might make you upset. I know it makes me upset. I'm not going to put up with people saying bad things about people I love, right? And in this day and age, there's really no shortage of people saying bad things about Jesus. There's no, no shortage of people saying bad things about the church or bad things about God. I see it all the time, in social media especially. And how does that make you feel when you hear these things or see them? Is it something that you can just... Um, Okay, yeah, they're entitled to their opinion. I'll just, you know, I'll let it go. doesn't matter to me. Or is it something that invokes an emotional reaction? Do you, do you get upset or does it make you just want to say something? Tell them that they're wrong. How does it make you feel? And that's the second test. And then the second commandment. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. I think we've all heard this one before. It's been beaten to death. Been there, done that, got the t-shirt. Um, I think it's nice. Our society embraces this value, not just within the Christian community, but even like, you know, non-Christian, non-religious schools, they teach this to their kids. You know, treat others the way you want to be treated. It's the golden rule. 
And so as a society, we embrace this value and we tell ourselves that we're doing a good job of this, but in reality, we actually don't. We don't do a good job of this one. If you, if you look at it from a different perspective, I feel like it's one of those things where we're telling ourselves we're doing a good job of it so that we can give ourselves a pat on the back and try to convince ourselves that we're doing a good job of it when we really aren't. We're just trying to fool ourselves with these fluffy words. We don't treat others the way we want to be treated. We treat others, we treat others the way we feel they deserve to be treated. If somebody wrongs us, we're not going to do something nice for them. Most people wouldn't. Society wouldn't expect you to do something nice to that person. You're expected to seek retribution, to seek revenge. Even if they didn't do something wrong to you. We tend to label people into like, all these different categories of, okay, we like these people, we don't like these people. And then there's the people we don't like, and then we try to convince our friends and family not to like those people too. Maybe they did something to us. Maybe they didn't even do something to us. Maybe, maybe we just don't like the way they live their life or something about them. Some of the, some of the labels that we give people, I mean, recently it's been on the media lately about race and ethnicity, but that's not the only way that people are judging one another. We're judging one another by political affiliation, you know? Ah, oh, those liberals. Ah, oh, those conservatives. We'll judge people by their wealth class. Ah, oh, those rich people. Ah, oh, those poor people. We judge people by their contribution to society. Ah, oh, those criminals. Those Calgary flames. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, but that's, that's our human nature. We like to judge people. And, and then we categorize them as the ones we like and the ones we don't like. And the ones we don't like, we want to treat them poorly and we want to encourage others to treat them poorly. And that's what our society not only encourages, but it's an expectation. But that's not what it says in this verse. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Period. My favorite part about that specific line is actually the punctuation mark at the end, the period. Because it doesn't go on explaining a bunch of hypothetical situations in which you don't need to love your neighbor. It's a period. It doesn't go on listing a bunch of exceptions. Love your neighbor as you love yourself, except for these people or those people, right? No, there are no exceptions. And that's why I like this passage, because it just calls us to love everybody, no matter who they are, no matter what they've done. That's our calling, to love everybody. So perhaps somebody offended you. Well, it's pretty clear what Jesus says here. Love your neighbor as you love yourself, and that person is your neighbor. And you might be thinking, okay, I could try, but but Chris, you don't know what that person did to me. Yeah, you're right, I don't know. But what I do know, I know what it says in the Bible, I know what it says right there. Jesus says, love your neighbor as you love yourself. And that person's your neighbor. And you might be thinking, yeah, but Chris, you don't know 
You don't know how evil some people are. And I mean, yeah, you're right. I don't. I don't know what they did. I don't know what your experiences are. But we can look at Jesus' example. Jesus said in um, Matthew 5, verse 44, love your enemy, pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemy. I know for myself and a lot of us in this society, this day and age, we're very blessed to not have an enemy like they did in that day and age. It took me a while to realize that the, the significance of what an enemy is in this passage, because Jesus is speaking to the Jewish population here who had recently been invaded, conquered, occupied, and subjugated by the Romans. The Romans killed a lot of these people. And Jesus is saying, love your enemy, love these people that are killing you. If Jesus can say to love the people that are killing you, can we not give love to the people who cut us off in traffic? Can we not give love to the people who offended us? Whatever they did. The Romans killed a lot of these people. Jesus himself was killed by the Romans. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, you know what he said? He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I don't know about you, but anything anyone's ever done to me, compared to that, it's petty. It's really petty. You see, in order to have hatred in your heart for someone, let's talk about what hatred is a little bit first and what love is. I think love is a genuine desire in your heart for good things to happen to somebody, independent of your own happiness. You just want that person to be happy. And hatred is the opposite. Hatred is you want that person to be unhappy. If, if there's somebody you don't like and something bad happens to them, there's this little feeling of like, yeah, they deserved that. And this little feeling of happiness, right? So if you have this hatred, or even if you just don't like somebody, there has to be a reason for it. You're not just going to dislike someone or dislike a group of people for no reason at all. There's going to be a reason. They had to have done something. They had to have earned your hatred. And if something bad happens to them, then they deserve those bad things. But if they earned your hatred and they did something for that, then you had to have judged them to conclude that they did something. You've judged them and they are guilty. But what does Jesus say about judging others? I think some of you know what Jesus says about judging others, and we're in a little bit of trouble here. Jesus says, don't judge others. Matthew 7, verse 1, don't judge others or you will be judged. With the same measure you use to judge others will be measured to you. Why do you point at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye when you have a plank in your own eye? That's what Jesus said about judging others. And my friends, I'll be the first to admit, I have a plank in my eye. I have a plank so big you could probably build a boat. I am no better than any, any of those people who are in my life, the people who, who I have judged. 
I'm no better than them. I am not qualified to throw a stone at anybody. So what do I deserve? What have I earned? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what I've earned. It doesn't matter what I deserve. Because what does matter is what we receive. And what we receive is forgiveness. It doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. It doesn't matter how bad you think you are or the things that you've done are. It doesn't matter. Jesus paid for all of that on the cross. It's water under the bridge. God has forgiven us. And God's forgiveness is different than, um, than human forgiveness. You see, human forgiveness, I think a lot of us have experienced this. Human forgiveness is like, okay, I forgive you, but it better not happen again or you're in double trouble. <laughs> right? God's forgiveness is so much better. It's just simply, I forgive you. And if it happens again, I forgive you. Again and again and again. Because that's how much God loves us. I have a daughter. She's almost four years old now. And uh, I can't think of anything she could do that I wouldn't forgive. I just love her so much. I have a wife. I think she loves me a lot too. And I have reason to believe God loves us a lot too because of his, for, his level of forgiveness for all of us. God's love for us is the most powerful force in the entire universe, and it is absolutely unconditional. No matter who you are or what you've done, God loves you. You don't, there's nothing you can do to earn God's love. And it doesn't matter if you deserve God's love. What matters is what we receive, and it's God's love. So you remember the first commandment that God asks, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. That's how much God loves you. Thank you, Chris. We should just end there. I want to finish out the passage, though. Um, for Jesus, this is the foundational command that uh, all the others build upon. It's the command to love God. Four times in verse 30 in our passage in Mark, it says all. Love the Lord with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind. And so he wants our complete and total love of, of, of our whole being. And it's only possible, because like Chris said, it, because he poured out his infinite love for us in his death on the cross. And if we truly love God, then we will love our neighbor. We will love people. We will grow to love our enemies because Jesus loves everyone. And we will grow to love the things he loves. He died for that person that you struggle with just as much as he died for you. 
We express our love for God through our love for people. So if we love God, we will love people. They, they are combined. That's why he puts them both together. And we'll love people whether we like them or not, whether we agree with them or not, no matter how we feel about them, when we accept the love of Jesus, when we truly accept his love and we grow in him, we will learn to love even our enemies, even that person that you really struggle with. Not because we're so loving, but because he is. And the love that he is fills and transforms our hearts empowering us to love with his perfect love. Well, the teacher of the law, he hears Jesus' answer and he, he recognizes the truth of what Jesus says. He recognizes that these two commands, to love God and to love others, are, are the foundation for all the other commands. The, the other commands are just spelling out the different ways that you live out these two commands. And then he demonstrates, this teacher demonstrates that even more he understands this by saying that even all the sacred offerings and sacrifices that were so important to the Israelite people and to him, they were not as important as love. Another way of saying this would be to say that all the offerings and sacrifices are meaningless unless they are an expression of love, unless that's the foundation. Offering love, living a life of love for God and for people is the sacrifice that God desires, that is pleasing to him. So in verse 34, Jesus hears this man's response and he recognizes that, that this man's understanding of, of God's love is, is so good. But he says something surprising. He doesn't say, you get it, well done. And he doesn't say, well, stop talking about it and go do it. He says, you're not far from the kingdom of God. Jesus is the ultimate authority. He's the ultimate authority who determines what's important. He's the one who sees people's hearts and where they're at. He is the truth, but to be in the kingdom is not just to accept that he is the truth. Like Chris said, it's not just to acknowledge his existence. It's not just to accept that he's true. It's not just to agree that he's true. To be in the kingdom is to submit completely to the authority and person of Jesus. To be in the kingdom is to trust Jesus, get on the plane, not just look at it and say, yeah, that, that exists, but get on it. I trust it with my life. The teacher of the law was close. He had accepted that Jesus is the truth, or, or what, he accepted what Jesus said about love. He accepted and he agreed with what Jesus said about love, but he had not yet submitted to Jesus and put his faith and hope and trust in him. He hadn't gotten on the plane. The only way to know the pure, infinite, powerful love of Jesus is to trust Jesus with your whole life. To get on the plane, to say, I, I, I trust you, not me, not somebody else, but you, Jesus. If you have not received the all-powerful, almighty, infinite love of Jesus, you can ask him for it this morning. You can admit that you need Jesus for true and eternal life. Ask him to forgive you for trying to do it on your own and messing up. And put your complete faith and hope in him. Ask him to lead you and he will fill you with his spirit of love that transforms you into a loving person with his powerful love.
If you have received the love of Jesus, ask Jesus to fill you anew with the wonder of his love, like Chris shared with us, what he did for us. Ponder what it means for you to be loved by the almighty, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, infinite, unbounded God who does not command you to work hard enough. He doesn't command you to be better or to earn your way. Instead, he showed his love by coming to the earth, suffering and dying for you and for me. And with the same power that he rose from the grave, he will empower you. That same power of love will come and fill you and enable you to love even that person that you really struggle with, even your greatest enemy. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you for your transforming love. Thank you for the love of Jesus. Thank you for Chris and, and his powerful words and how it, it's obvious how it impacted his life and I pray that it impacts our life. Father, your love is greater than we can possibly imagine and yet we can experience it now and we can accept it. Help us to be amazed by it, to submit again to it, or for the first time, help us to invite you in and help us to be people of love, known for our love, not known for our judgment or our doctrine, but known for our love, which will be right doctrine, which will be truth, because you are truth. But help us to be known by our love, because you are love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.